And now, friends, I invite you to stand once again for the reading of God's word. Um, Daniel chapter one, verses one through twenty one. That's on page seven hundred and ninety of your pew Bible. You're probably wondering, what are we going to do after we finished Luke? I gave you hints that one day we'll go on to the book of Acts and preach through that as the sequel to Luke. But for now, we're going to preach through Daniel. The book of Daniel is going to be our sermon series throughout this summer, probably going into the fall. And so hear the Lord's word from Daniel chapter one, verses one through twenty one. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of the God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury, treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who were of our own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter, and he tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate at the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of that time, When the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought him in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year 
of King Cyrus. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Amen. You may be seated. Let's pray. Dear Lord, may your hand be upon us with this start of a new sermon series. And may our ears be ready to hear your word and receive it and to do it. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a famous scene in the movie, The Wizard of Oz. When Dorothy has just been lifted from her home and uh, by this tornado, of course, and She's put down in this strange land and she looks around and she sees a strange people and a a yellow brick road. And she says to her little dog, Toto, I don't think we're in Kansas anymore. Those iconic words. Well, there comes a point in the Christian life when those words ring true for every single one of us. Because we are strangers, exiles in this land. We are not quite to home yet. We're not in Kansas anymore, we say, as we look around and we see that uh, we, our convictions as Christians are not, not often welcomed in the public square. This is increasingly the truth, isn't it? I mean, there were times maybe 50, 60 years ago where uh, some Christian convictions, not all, received the blessing of culture at large. But now we're starting to see a time where things are are even more difficult. And you see that to be a Christian in this time and in this place is hard. It's hard to live out the Christian life without being seen as weird and strange in this land. Like like we've come from another place and we're going to another place. Well, that's it exactly. We are not home. We are refugees. We are immigrants in this land. Because this world is not our home, we are going to Zion. God's people, before the coming of Jesus, felt this way. 600 years before Jesus arrived, Israel went into exile in Babylon. They became refugees, immigrants, strangers in a land that was not their home. And you heard their their song in um, Psalm 137. How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? It was a time of confusion and frustration and they felt weird to be where they were. Not just weird, they felt persecuted and pressured. They felt like us. And it was out of this time when God had given over Israel to a a time of suffering and exile away from home, away from Zion, that the book of Daniel emerges. By God's appointed word, by the work of the Holy Spirit, the book of Daniel emerges appears as this survival guide for exiles. A a survival manual for a people that are far away from their heavenly home. How do we survive the exile? How do we find hope in the midst of this time and this season of our lives and our culture? Well, Daniel has many answers to that, and we're going to see that. We're going to see that he gives you answers first through the narratives in the the first portion of the book and then through the apocalyptic portion at the end of the book. But here in chapter one, he kind of lays it all before you and shows you what kind of a book we're dealing with. It is indeed a survival manual showing you God's plan 
during your exile. So we're going to look at three plans in this passage. First, we're going to see the plan of Babylon. Second, we're going to see the plan from Daniel. And then we're going to see God's plan. Three plans. And the plan of Babylon is is right here. You can't miss it, right? Very beginning. What is Babylon's plan? What is King Nebuchadnezzar's plan? Indoctrination. That's one word you could use. Brainwashing. Control. Imagine that you are in the court of a great king, the greatest king at that that time, Nebuchadnezzar. And in his palace filled with gold and treasures, uh, filled with things and people, slaves taken captive from Israel, The Ark of the Covenant sees from Israel. What do you see? You see the king gathering with his officials because he has a big question hanging over his his control and his realm. And it's this. Now what? Now what? We've taken Israel hostage. We've taken them to our land. But then the work just really begins, right? Because once you've conquered a people physically, you still have the possibility that they could rebel and push back and they're going to be in your land, but not really your people. And so what do you do? Well, the king has a diabolical plan and it's this. He's going to take the youth of Israel and he's going to turn them into poster children for Babylon. You notice that? If he can just win over the youth, then he's won the whole battle. Because if he can control the future, if he can take the future of Israel and make them look like no different than Babylon in their convictions and their thoughts and their lives, then, wow, you have won two two wars. The war of the people and the war of the mind and the war of the heart. Three years re-education program. That's, That's what... The king decides on three years to take the very best and brightest of the Jewish youth, their poster children, and to make them poster children of Babylon. And there's several ways in which they do this, right? There's there's strategies that actually um, are employed by the king. First of all, he starts feeding these uh, youth new ideas. An intensive study program at the University of Babylon in literature and the language of the Chaldeans. What would they learn? They would learn some, uh, the language of the Babylonians, Sumerian, Akkadian, Aramaic. They would learn the myths, uh, the religious myths of Babylon, the Epic of Gilgamesh, for instance, for those who, who have read that. They would learn um, medicine, art, and astronomy, and, and all of this. What's it like? They're just being fed uh, dose after dose of Babylonian ideology, the Babylonian worldview. And so they just kind of start to feel suffocated by all these, um, these ideas that are not at all what they're used to. They're not the convictions that they were taught and raised by their parents to believe. And then you have not only new ideas, but new names. Hananiah becomes Shadrach. Mishael becomes Meshach. Azariah becomes Abednego. Daniel becomes Belteshazzar. And these are not just random names. They have a point. There's a purpose to them. Daniel, um, well, let me say it this way. All of these names in their Hebrew form reflect undying commitment to God. But that's the very thing that is erased and changed when they're, when they're given Babylonian names. Watch this. 
Hananiah means Yahweh is gracious. The God of Israel is gracious. Guess what that's changed to? Shadrach. Command of Aku, who's one of the gods of, of Babylon. Mishael means who is like God, the God of Israel. And that's changed to Meshach. Who is like Aku? Azariah, Yahweh is my helper. It's changed to servant of Nebo. Daniel means God is my judge and is changed to Belteshazzar. The God of Babylon is my king. You see what they're doing? Intentionally uh, trying to erase the identity of Israel from these youth. And then on top of all this, you know, these, these Israelite youth are only 13 or 16 years old. That's all they are. And these young boys start to feel the pressures of Babylon come in on them. And on top of that, they are served up a new diet. Only food from the king's table. That's all they can eat. Only the very best. Now you say, well, that, that sounds all real hard. That sounds real tough. You know, basically served, you know, uh, the, the best food in the world every day. You know, the king served, you know, you can a 10 course meal every day. And that food comes right to the uh, from his table to the lips of the youth that are in this training program. And all of this is what's it all about? It's all about removing these boys commitment to God of Israel and replacing that with a new commitment to the king of Babylon. Isn't this how Satan still works today? He suffocates us with the world's way of seeing reality. He oppresses that in and in and in on us. You know, everything, every, every conversation we have, when we turn on the news, what's flashing on the screen, it's the world's ideology. It's the value system of the world. And that comes into us and comes through our eyes and through our ears, unfiltered. And then, what does Satan do besides that? He, he seduce, seduces us with the pleasures of the world. Food from the king's table, you could, you could say. Because here's the reality. To give up aspects of your Christian identity to conform to the world, it can feel pretty good. You know, immediate pleasure. Immediate uh, friendship saying, well, great, you, you, you know, now you're talking like us. Now you're looking at the things we're looking at. You're like us now. And so what do we receive when we conform and, and give in to this uh, re-education program, you could say? We receive status in the eyes of the world. We receive pleasures and immediate gratification of our flesh. It's, it's not that hard. You know what's really hard is to say No. And all of this, what is Satan after? What was he after in Babylon? What is he after with us? Day after day, he wants us to give up little pieces of our identity as Christians. And he wants the one day we realize we've finally given up so much that we've totally forgotten that God is our source of all things good. We've forgotten that God is the source of our daily bread. And now we're saying that something or someone else is the source of that. That some idol, whether it is a king or a ruler or a political party or a, 
um, some world system, maybe it's consumerism itself, it has grabbed our hearts and become so large that it is our God. It is our king. We worship it. We serve it. We, we take our minds and bend our minds and wills to it. And so I ask you, are your eyes open to, the, to these schemes of the devil? That's what Paul calls them in, in the New Testament. He says that the devil is at work. Through intentional schemes, taking captive, blinding the minds and the hearts of unbelievers. And he does this, you know, you say, well, he's got to be doing that through like the obvious stuff, like devil worship and stuff. He does it too, and especially so through these subtle but consistent shaping of our hearts and minds. First our minds and then our hearts. Just say, hey, I, I give in. It's easier to live like the God of Israel doesn't exist. It's easier. I'm just, I'm just gonna, you know, maybe I'll acknowledge him with my lips. Yeah, I'm a Christian, but, but everything about me besides that is just given in, conformed, compromised. Do you feel that pressure? Do you feel it even in subtle ways? You know, your, your heart's being tugged saying, yeah, I wanna, I wanna talk like, I want to talk like the world talks. I don't want to have to worry about what I say. I want to get that instant gratification of my flesh that the world gets. Why do they get to enjoy all that? Why can't I? And then why do I have to believe things that people think are so weird? It would just be easier if I just kind of you know, held them loosely and said, you know, I, I guess this might be true. You know, why can't I just do that? Let me ask a final question here as, as you hear about this program of Babylon and realize that it really is the same kind of program that is at work in, in, in the world today. Does your view of the political, social, and intellectual currents of this, this moment in history, does it leave room for a serious level of concern? You know, do, when you see the currents of this world and the, way, the ways that the, you know, the mainstream um, culture is moving things, uh, you know, you're going to see good things. I, I, don't, I don't want you to, to think that I'm saying from the pulpit that everything there is rotten to the core. You're going to see elements of God's grace and truth. But the way that, that the program is being used, the way that these currents are moving, should register a serious level of concern. You should come to them and say, huh, what, what is Satan up to in the world? If you don't have that level of concern, if you just kind of say, hey, I, I'm inviting it all in and I'm, I'm really not too, too concerned about it, then you need to get concerned. You must get concerned. That's Babylon's plan, but there's another plan in this passage, and that is Daniel's plan. We see that take place, starting in verse 8. What is his plan as he is confronted with this full-out pressure, suffocating pressure from Babylon? What does young Daniel do? He resists. That's his plan, in, in a nutshell, is resistance. He fights back. He pushes back. 
He takes a firm stand. And where where does he take that, that stand? He says, I won't eat from the king's table. And he's willing to persist with that plan even when it runs into obstacles. He really, he said, this is important. It's important enough that I'm going to risk my own life to persist with this plan. Now, why this? Why is Daniel so focused on not eating from the king's table, but instead he's focused on eating vegetables and water and drinking water? What's the deal with that? And some commentators have said, well, it's because of Jewish dietary laws. That's what he's trying to do. But you have to understand that Wine, was, and certainly some foods that he was being offered, were not against Jewish dietary laws. There were things that he could eat. I think there's a deeper reason here why Daniel takes this stand in this place. He's not just resisting to be weird. He's not just resisting uh, for the sake of you know, uh, eating you know, vegetables that, that he thinks will be most healthy, you know, the Daniel diet, as it's called. No, he is resisting in the very place where God's holiness is most at stake. He's resisting at the very place where his heart is most tempted to cave in to the pressures of this world. He's resisting the diet because it's where the king has said, you are mine and your heart is mine. Daniel is saying this, If I take the king's food, then I'm the king's man. If I cave in and and, and just take into my heart all the pleasures of this world, then what's to stop this this plan from, from working itself out? Daniel is concerned that his own heart is vulnerable and fragile, and so he takes this stand. I will not compromise God's holiness in my heart. And I want you to notice something about this stand. It is not only a firm stand, he, says, I mean, he digs in and says, I need to do this. But he, it's also a modest stand. It's not flashy. It's not dramatic. It's, it, it kind of flies in the face of the American way of doing things, right? Flipping over uh, the, the king's plates and saying, I will not eat your food. No. What does he do? Personal commitment to holiness and it's not just in the big dramatic things of life. It's in the small moments of faithfulness. You know, I used to, um, to have daydreams when I was in middle school of how I would stay true to my Christian convictions by, by uh, you know, speaking out when the teacher said something that wasn't true and raising my hand. And you know, this, this um, moment from the movies where I would say, no, that is not true. You need to believe in Jesus. You know? And uh, you can almost have filmed it, right? But here's the thing. The moments of real resistance, they usually don't play out in that way. Sometimes. When resistance really happens, it's usually in those small moments of faithfulness. Small opportunities for everyday commitment to God and his truth and his word and his standard of holiness lived out. And it it happens. um, That's where the battle is fought. Do you realize that? In the small moments of saying, God, I'm going to stay true to what you want me to say here. I'm not going to use the words um, of the world. I'm going to use your words. I'm not going to in, you know, indulge in, 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 um, in, in lust here. I'm going to stay true to you. I'm going to keep my eyes pure. I'm going to keep myself focused.
What does this mean for us as we hear of Daniel's resistance in Babylon in the midst of his exile? I want to give you a few points of application here. First, you must build into your lives constant reminders of who your true king is. That's how resistance takes place. Do you see that's what Daniel is doing? He wants this constant reminder. Nebuchadnezzar, I serve him, but he's not my ultimate king. God is. And his diet was a daily reminder of that. What is your daily reminder? What are your, what are your reminders throughout your walk that Yahweh is your ultimate king and you serve him above all else? Let me give you a few. Perhaps your diet actually may have something to do with this. Maybe. I'm not saying, you know, Daniel, time to go Daniel diet. No, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is fasting is actually something throughout the scriptures that we are, are given a picture of. And part of it is, uh, what it's doing is saying, um, I'm going to, for a time, for a, for a short season, abstain from food and drink when I am most tempted to give in to the pressures of this world. And that is going to be a moment of prayerful concentration that I am not my own, but I belong to God. And every pang of my stomach, every um, rumbling tummy that happens is a reminder God is my king. He's the source of my food. He's the one I serve. And so if fasting has no place in your life, maybe you need to ask yourself, is there a time when you are most tempted or maybe an upcoming season of, of study or time spent with the, with ba- in Babylon when, um, when you could take a time to fast and pray? Here's another way you can build into your lives consistent reminders of who your true king is, and it is what you're doing right now. Do you know that right now you are engaged in a high, highly successful form of resistance? Do you know that right now you are launching one of the most countercultural activities you could ever engage in? You are gathering for worship. You are taking time out of your travels through Babylon, through the world, to get together with other believers and to worship the true God as a weekly reminder that he is your king and that out of all the things you could be doing, worshiping your king is most important. Out of all the people that you could be with, the people of God are the most important in shaping your life. Worship is so countercultural and in a good kind of way. And so are you gathering consistently for worship? You're, you're here this morning. Good. Keep it up. Do what Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego did. They gathered together in the midst of Babylon as this little cloister um, to, uh, to remind themselves, we serve the king. We serve the king. Let me give you another encouragement here. You must, brothers and sisters, you must pay careful attention to what you are allowing into the gate of your mind and to your heart. What's going in? Is, is the filter of God's word active and engaged, discerning what, is, uh, what you are learning? Um, notice, notice this. Daniel did not say, you know, all of this is pagan gibberish. I am not going to study the language of the Akkadians. I am not going uh, to learn anything that they have to teach me. I'm going, uh, they can take me to death, but I am not going to learn it. No, he said, no, I'm going to learn. 
It's going to go into my mind, but I am going to filter it. I'm going to discern it through the word of God. Parents, are you committed to Christian education? What I mean by this, I am not prescribing to you saying you have to send your kid to this school. You have to do it this way. But there is one thing that is absolutely true, that the Bible just does not leave negotiable. If you are not coming along your children in such a way that everything they're learning is brought uh, back to the God of the scriptures, then what you're effectively doing is giving away large portions of their life and calling them, them neutral and saying that, that those really don't belong to God? Are you coming along your children so that all of their lives are, are an act of worship, even the things that go into their mind, and that whether you know, they're, they're, uh, they're in public school or in, in private school or Christian school or homeschooled, whatever they're doing, you are the most engaged person in their learning. That's essential. You have to be engaged in helping them to discern and in teaching them to discern what they're learning and making decisions that are wise for their education. Kids, I'm speaking to you now. Don't let anyone feed you the lie that your time growing up until you, until you become an adult are times when you can just kind of explain experiment with what you're learning and what you believe. And, um, this is not a time when you can just have a free-for-all and live, live how you want and then later kind of you know, get things straight. We're kind of told that. Kind of told like, hey, you're young. You know, you're figuring things out. Guess what? Daniel was probably 13 years old here. And God showers honor upon him because he's faithful and because he, he takes his mind and says, I'm only going to believe what God wants me to believe. I'm going to learn a lot, but I'm going to filter it through the knowledge of God. I'm going to be around people that believe things that I don't, and I'm going to love them, and I'm going to be friends with them, but ultimately, I'm going to live how God wants me to live. That is your call right now, whatever age you're at. Jesus says it this way, we must be wise as serpents, but innocent as doves, discerning, ready, resisting. It's, it's beautiful to see this faithfulness of Daniel in this passage, isn't it? You see it and you say, wow, I wonder if I would take that stand if I was in Babylon. I wonder if I would be able to, to, to make that confident pledge. You know, feed me vegetables and watch me grow or I'll die. Could we say that? Daniel is faithful. Daniel is a beautiful form of resistance, but there is a faithfulness in this passage that is even stronger than his. And that's the faithfulness of God. Did you notice in this passage that God's plan is the one that is persisting throughout the entire chapter? We can't can't escape reminders of it. And what is God's plan? Babylon's plan? Indoctrination? Daniel's plan? Discerning resistance? God's plan? Preservation, preservation. There is the faithfulness of God in this passage. Every step of the way, God is the one who's giving his people exactly what they need so that when the world does its worst, God's faithfulness is enough. That's not my quote. I borrowed it from someone. I have to say that. 
When the world does its worst, God's faithfulness is enough. Let's look at this in this passage. Verse 2. God's plan, God's faithfulness is enough to keep us from falling. You'll notice that in verse 2, it was the Lord himself who, who gave Jehoiakim into Nebuchadnezzar's hands. This wasn't just some accident that they ended up in, in exile. They're there because the Lord is at work keeping his people alive and faithful. And then it's the God who gives them into exile who also supplies for them in exile. In verse 9, it was God who gave Daniel favor and compassion with the people that he's spending time with in Babylon. What does this mean? It means that God has not abandoned his exiles and our exiles in, in this time. He's with us. He's gone ahead of us. Isn't that what the Christ cross of Jesus is all about? The God of the universe took on flesh and entered into our exile, our time of waiting for heaven. And he did that to prepare the way for us to go ahead of us so that as we live our time in this life, waiting for heaven, waiting for the life to come, we live that life knowing that a death blow has been landed upon the head of Satan on the cross as Jesus died for the sins of his people. And we know not only that, but that Babylon itself has been disarmed so that all weapons used against us will fail. We don't have to be afraid about what we learn. You know, we can learn about pagan literature. Uh, we can learn about, um, we, we can learn all sorts of things that, that aren't outwardly Christian because we don't have to be afraid of it. We can have a healthy fear of our own hearts with respect to it, but we know that God, God has gone ahead to preserve us. That's what the cross tells us. But the, the cross not only shows us that it is enough, God's faithfulness is enough to keep us from falling, but God's faithfulness is also enough to make us a blessing. This is really important. Look at verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. And even before this, what happened with that test that God was, that Daniel put before the king? Well, he succeeded. That test wasn't just about testing the, the power of, of vegetable superfoods, right? Right? It's not, veggies are superior to meat. Water is superior to wine. No. It was basically saying this. And let me put it another way. You've got one dude who goes and he, he, um, he eats french fries every day of his life. And then he weightlifts. You've got another guy who goes and he eats high, high quality whey protein. And he weightlifts. Who's going to be the better Who's going to come out stronger? Who's going to have muscles? You'd say, not the guy who ate the French fries. He's going, to be, he's going to be a mess. But what if I told you that he's the one who at the end of 10 days of, of intense workout was, was the best? You'd say, that doesn't make sense. That's not natural. That's exactly right. It's because God is doing this. God took uh, four youths who ate only vegetables and water and made them fatter and stronger than all of the youth of Babylon who were eating 
course after course of the king's rich table. And he uses these youth to bless a watching world. That's what's so amazing about this. God just doesn't keep us from falling. He makes us flourish so that we're a blessing to Babylon. He reverses Babylon's attacks and and uses us to bless them and encourage them and and point them to Jesus. When all odds are stacked against us, God gives us success. And so we can say this, that God can take that scientist who rejects the secular theory of macroevolution And he can take him, and over years of being laughed at in his field, he can, he can turn that so that he is given a place of prominence. And he's looked up to by other professors. God can take a high school teacher who refuses to endorse homosexuality in the classroom, and, and he can make her a beautiful picture of Jesus to her students who are struggling with their identity. You ever seen that happen? I went to a, a funeral once. It was a funeral of a man who worked amongst a lot of unbelieving people. Um, he was a car salesman, and he, he, he worked among a lot of people who just, um, I'm, not saying, I'm not saying that line of work doesn't have people that, that believe in God, but he, he happened to work amongst a lot of unbelievers. And I remember going to his funeral, and the place was packed full. And afterwards, I find out after a beautiful Christian um, funeral service that all the people are there because of the impact he made on their lives. And one guy said to me, yeah, we, all, we always made fun of, him, fun of him because he was just different from us, you know? He didn't do the things we looked at. He didn't, he didn't, he didn't laugh at the same jokes. He didn't talk the way we talked. He didn't drink himself sick like we drink drank ourselves sick. But you know what? We respected him. And one day, we, we realized, I realized, when, when, when I heard he had died, I, I realized that I'm not sure that God exists. But if he does, the closest I ever felt to him was when I was talking with, with that man. You know that you can have that kind of impact in Babylon and God can actually use that to bring souls to believe in Jesus because they notice you're different? And not only different, but you're successful and that God has given you gifts of success and wisdom and discernment? Do you believe that your difference in this world can actually be the kind of difference that can bless others? God's faithfulness is enough to keep us from falling. God's faithfulness is enough to make us a blessing. And finally, friends, God's faithfulness is enough to bring us home from exile. You know, our time here, it is fleeting. It will fade. Daniel's going to tell us that, especially in the end portions of his book. We are wayfaring strangers, wandering on our way to home. But the exile is coming to an end, and you see that in verse 21. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Do you know what King Cyrus did? Soon as he got power, the very year he got power, he said, Israel, you're going home. By decree of King Cyrus, the exile is over. God, through King Cyrus, brought that exile to the end. So what is God telling us here at the end of this passage? The exile is long, it is hard, it is full of pressures. You're going to feel that, but don't forget, I brought it to an end for Israel. 
I'm bringing it to an end for you. Heaven is coming. Home is soon. When the world does its worst, God's faithfulness is enough. Let's pray. Dear Lord, may you give us strength from the cross, strength from your Holy Spirit to be firm where we need to be firm. But Lord, help us to not just be weird for the sake of being weird. Help us to not just be countercultural just because we, we think that that's the right thing to do. But Lord, help us to take the stand where we need to take it, where your holiness is at stake. And then help us to be bold to do so. Lord, we love so many things in this life and uh, there, you, are, you have showered us with good gifts. We know that's not wrong, but Lord, help us to not love them more than we love you. And when the world wants us to love them more than we love you, help us to say no. Keep us faithful all the way to home. We pray this in Christ's name.